everybody let's get into it happy tuesday great to have you all here after two weeks in a row of broadcasting from a remote studio and some very lovely places actually we are back into uh back at boston back at hq and looking forward to diving into this one before we get into that i just wanted to keep get everyone a little bit updated last week we had our second annual refine labs offsite the first one only had four employees and it was back in 2019 but we had our second Refine Labs team offsite in Austin, Texas, and it was incredible. We had about 40, 45 people that joined us there. Uh, we had an awesome time. We talked strategy. We talked how we can continue to innovate and improve on our customer outcomes and just generally had a really awesome time. So wanted to share that. We're also recruiting for, I think, about 17 open roles right now. So if you are interested in joining the team, feel free to DM me or look at the roles on LinkedIn to see if one would be a match for what you want in your career. And we would love to have you here. So now that we've got through that, let's get into the agenda today. We have an action-packed one. One that I'm going to come out with is a history of lead gen and ABM. And so the way that I look at this is actually a little bit different, which is that the way that I see it, there are basically two core foundational marketing models that exist in B2B companies right now. It is the lead gen demand waterfall from 2012, or it is the ABM demand waterfall from 2018 or something like that. And so I'm going to break down both of them to the roots because both of those waterfall models were published by Serious Decisions. The one in 2012 was built around on the marketing side, if we exclude sales, which the sales side was really predictable revenue. But if you look on the marketing side, that strategy was really built around marketing automation platforms. And so what I'm saying here is we have basically marketing strategies that had originated from tech. So we have marketing automation platforms that come in. What can they do? They can send automated emails. So what is what do they teach Mark and how does how do those companies make money back then? They make money when you put more contacts in your database. So what do they tell you to do? They tell you to collect more MQLs. And so you're collecting more MQLs, they're charging you more, you can send more emails, which is where the MQL metric originated which still to this day, a lot of marketing teams optimize for like 10 years later. And so, and then we have ABM, which now has this like secondary demand waterfall, maybe it's the third edition, which comprises intent, buying groups, other things like that. But if you really break it down, again, it's built around the technology, the beginning stages of the quote unquote funnel are built around intent data, which come from ABM platforms. It then tries to help you look at website engagement. And so because those tools, the technology was able to de-anonymize website traffic back to an account, it started to build around what should marketers do? Marketers should send emails and run ads to display ads so we can get people on our website. We can figure out what account they came from so that we can cold call them. And that's where the MQA metric started. And so what I'm trying to communicate here is we have basically the two most prevalent marketing models the foundation of them in the market today that are being operated in B2B SaaS companies and other B2B companies across the globe have both been built around technology. And what I'm wondering is, is it time for a marketing strategy that isn't built around technology, that's built around what customers need, that you can implement with very minimal technology, that doesn't 
involve a lot of the constraints that technology introduces, that you're able to add technology when you see fit in order to make things go faster, but you do not build around it. Those are some of the things that I'm wondering here. And be interested to see if anyone has any topics or questions you want to talk through on this one, but I'm just look, literally just analyzing what I see from the marketing models that exist and just challenging people to think about like where their marketing model came from and if there's a better way to think about it. Let's get into it. So as I'm drumming up some questions in the chat, I'll throw out a fun one to you. Do you think it's possible to execute marketing with zero technology? I talk through the idea that you can almost get anything done with only a CRM. So that's minimum requirement. You could do it without one. You can do whatever you want. It's just like a CRM is really helpful, especially if you're aligned to revenue and you have multiple people. So like, I would say that a CRM is probably the minimum viable. But after that, what do you need to do marketing really well? Understanding of customers, ability to, to produce information that they want, put them in the places where they hang out, which are all free, are all publicly available on the internet, require no technology to use them, require no technology to measure them. And so I think that it's certainly possible. And that's what I recommended before is that if you thought about building your strategy based on what your customers tell you, instead of building it around what the technology can do, then what your customers tell you, then you start to experiment there. This is what I did in 2017. I saw that our customers were using Facebook and Instagram, and then they told us in large scale surveys that they used those platforms to research medical technology. So we started to put content there in order to educate them. And then what did we start to see? We started to see what are the metrics that actually matter when we do this? The metrics that actually matter was direct traffic going up, people going to the demo form, qualitative insights of what our customers are telling us. And then once you know what are the signals that I'm seeing that we know are correlated with revenue because we've watched the revenue close, and then you set your leading KPIs based on that. But instead, what most companies do is they set their leading KPIs at the beginning before they know if the system works, before they know how the system operates, which introduces incredible constraints of what marketers can and cannot do in order to maintain those metrics. And so I'm challenging people to just think about it a little bit in reverse. Instead of starting with the tech, start with the customer and then prove out the model and then set your KPIs and then add technology if it's appropriate. So Jessica asks, what does your tech stack look like at Refine Labs? And then I'll be able to bring Robert on for an event question right after, but I feel like to divulge our tech stack now, Chris. Let's let out all the secrets. (laughs) If you exclude things like Slack and project management and those things, and you really focus on marketing, our stack is HubSpot, CRM, and marketing automation. We use metadata for targeting. I'm trying to think what else. That might be it. Um, and HubSpot to power our website and our self-attribution. <laughs> yeah, and then and and the the rest is using free or low-cost tools to create information and then putting them in the places where people this is it's basically a like a content marketing strategy that is highly effective. It validates your claim that really a CRM might be all that you need. <laughs> Didn't even think about it, but <laughs> Let me bring on Robert. So this is related, but we're going to we're going to go down a little event tangent here. And so Robert, go ahead, please uh, ask your question live. Thank you everyone. So 
thinking about post-COVID or as we're trying to be back in person and we're putting butts in seats and trying to drive attendance and it gets especially sort of like right before that two to four week point where sales really start to generate. Um, I've seen across a lot of companies where there's a cold email dump and start spamming a lot of people, et cetera, all the, all the old tactics. Using your model, how would you think about selling tickets now for an event prior to, so we're, we're not using old tactics? So it's, you're selling tickets so or are you using it more attendance. as a lead gen? It is selling actual tickets to an event. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the goal of the event? Law firm growth event. So lawyers or law firms would pay you to go there and consume content. Consume content, yes. Got the speakers and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yep. Are you an events company or do you sell something else behind it? Services. You sell services behind it? Yes. Okay. So in 2020, right before the pandemic happened, we were running these events similar to what you're doing, but I think our goal was a little bit different, but we were char- we were charging money for the tickets, mainly so that the people had some stake in the game that they would not no-show on the day of. So we were charging like $50, $100 for tickets, and then we would put, it was a smaller event. We only had two or three hours of content. And the main reason that we were doing that is so that we could record the content so that the audience could participate in Q&A to help us create it so that we could take that and we could put it on the internet and then we would get most of the value out of it on the internet. And so it's a little bit of a different strategy than what you're doing. I just wanted to bring that up so that you have an idea of what, how I would think about it in a little bit of a different way, especially if the services are the place where you actually make your money. So I'll pause there and see if you have any response and we can get into selling tickets. So we did something like that. We had 63 law firm owners over the last 12 months record their personal and professional growth in a series of videos that we tie together. And then we have a voting model behind that. Um, whoever wins the, the most votes is actually going to get a Rolls Royce ghost at the event. Um, so we're really celebrating their achievements. The tickets are $2,600 full pop. And mm-hmm. then drive, drive to the event and then sell services at the event. I don't think the speakers are selling anything. Yeah, I mean, $2,600 for an event, I think you're going to be needing some tremendous perceived ROI for people to go and do that. Have you done this event before? This is the third year. Okay, so you did it in 2019, and then it's been a couple years off, or have you been doing it every year? Uh, We skipped last year. We did virtual last year, or or earlier this year and at the end of last year. At $2,600 and you're looking to advertise it and you have speakers that would attract it and you have a brand that would encourage people to come at that price point, I would be using uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram ads targeted at the law firms and lawyers or whoever you're trying to attend, highlighting speakers, tracks, what they're going to get out of it, like basically value ROI. If it's a physical event and you need people there, Think about making a 50 mile or a hundred mile radius around the city instead of targeting the entire country so that you can be more efficient. If it's a $2,600 event, I would assume that some people would travel there for it too. So you can think about the targeting. So paid media to get people to sign up is one of them. Direct response is going to be tricky with $2,600 like self-checkout payments. So just work through that. But I know conferences use that tactic and have 
some level of success, even if people see the ad, hear about, hear about the conference, and then actually convert on a desktop computer later when they, because they don't want to convert on mobile. So that's a potential flow. Do you have any, the other things that I would go to is do you have, if I had media channels open, I would use our podcast, I would use LinkedIn, I would use other things that we already have owned channels with core audience to distribute that. The third thing I would do is I would look at the speakers and see if you can use the speakers more as like kind of like an influencer marketing play to drive registration. A lot of a lot of places do that. And the last thing I would do is I would think about if you could just use general influencer marketing that weren't speakers at the event to tell and communicate to other people. We're, and we're doing a little bit of that with the voting. We're providing them with templates that they can share on social in order to, to grab more attention for us. Mm-hmm. But generally, it's a, I mean, it's a tough time for an event that's a high ticket price. It's going to be in a physical location. I would really push you to think about what is your like hybrid or virtual strategy for this and what are you going to do with the content afterwards to make it worthwhile. I know that many events that are like this where they're trying to charge money to be profitable at an event are losing money hosting the event but are able to sometimes recoup it back by making money on the virtual or the content afterwards. So those are some things to consider. But attendance that I'm seeing, I've been to several conferences already. Attendance that I'm seeing is around 15, 20% of what it normally is. Yeah, the event itself, we're happy with a a break even or even a a slight loss Mm -hmm. looking at what the revenue is after the fact from services. Mm -hmm. And then I would think about more long-term, thinking about whether charge, if whether charging for the event at that price point is actually what you want to do, or if you want to think about changing the business, the model to get people in producing the content. And then when it's not $2,600, you can have a lot more flexibility on post event distribution on the internet. And when you do post event distribution of content on the internet, that's where you get all your customers. Okay. So take the, take the content, clean it up, chop it up and distribute, distribute it across all the channels. Yes. And if you do an event like this, 2,600 bucks, I imagine it's like a two, three day conference. So you've got a lot of different stuff that you can put out to chop up. You do one of those events, you have a, a year's worth of content. And then I would think about how to, how to do more of those events that are more micro, that are not as expensive, that aren't as high production, that are more focused on the information, and then do more of them throughout the year in different cities, and then use that as a continuous content loop. That's what we'll, when we can get back to events, that's what our strategy will be. Are you thinking about like mini roundtables that are high value add for maybe 10 people? Fireside chat, keynote, roundtables, like you decide what the, there's a bunch of formats that can work. And then it's somewhere between, I think 10 can work, 50 can work, even more than 100 can work. So somewhere in those types of ranges, but you get a sense of like, it's more like there's a room, maybe there's two or three or four hours of programming instead of several days you move around cities so that people don't need to travel to you. You actually go to them. You can have different programming in every city based on who you have in those cities so that your guests or the other people that are creating the content with you actually are from those cities. That's basically what we did pre-COVID and it was working really well. All right. Appreciate that, Chris. Thank you. Good to see you. Good question too. Thanks, Robert. Have another question, a little different, but we're just... Jumping into AMA tonight, our good friend Danny. I'm bringing you on. Hey, Danny, welcome. I'm looking to create my first direct mail campaign. Spoke with my VP of marketing, and he had mentioned to me 
go ahead and put a proposal together along with the effort and cost involved along with inspector ROI. Since this is gonna be my first campaign, just want to kind of get your thoughts on it and kind of see how should I proceed this. Uh, we're gonna be using Sendoso for one of the direct mails, but I was trying to create like a fun campaign, um, sending out prospects, beef jerkies. Two of our main personas is, is gonna be data scientists along with anything that's enterprise architects, but we'll let us kind of hear your thoughts on how should I um, start this campaign or any, any tips or advice, that's all. Thank you. Totally. Can you remind me, I think you told me before, but what is, how much does the product you're selling cost on average? So average size deal is gonna be between 50,000 up to 100,000. Okay. So let's just say, let's use 100K, let's use the top end for the sake of round numbers here. So at 100K, you'd be, your company would be pretty happy if you had a CAC payback of 12 months. And so CAC payback of 12 months, and then you split between marketing and sales, let's say marketing and sales are equally weighted. So then you have 50%, so $50,000 to acquire a customer, and then you back in based on win rates. So back in based on win rates, let's say 20% from SQO. So you're at 10K is like your absolute top end of what you would want to pay for a sales qualified opportunity. You're obviously going to be lower than that. So then like I'm trying to get a cost baseline just so you know like my, what I'm thinking about here. So then you have 10K. I'm actually thinking that you're going to want to target somewhere between mm, on other channels like outbound you're probably at 8K for an SQO. On other digital channels, you're probably somewhere between 3K and 5K. And so you have comparators. The point of me saying this is that you should figure out how much it's costing you to get a sales qualified opportunity in other ways, like outbound or paid media or et cetera. And then you have a baseline and then you can go after that. And the point is using SQOs. Most people that measure the success of direct mail are gonna measure it on meeting booked or meeting sat not SQO, you should align it to what your sales team really needs. So sales qualified opportunity that an A he sat on and still thinks it's open is what I would align it to because it's really easy to send direct mail, give away gift cards, do all that different stuff that people sit on meetings that never buy. So let's not do that. So then you have direct mail. When you're doing it, I think you're going to have like almost a couple of different measurement layers. One of the ones that we're working on experimenting right now is leveraging a QR code as the CTA. So you can use a QR code. I think you can actually embed UTMs into the QR code as well. So you could look at just the amount of people that engaged with the piece and then you could have cost per like engaged, right? So you're sending these things out. Let's say the, the whole package from Sendoso costs $20 and one out of 10 respond and you got like $200 per engaged person that worked in the QR code. I don't know what the number is going to be. I'm just making this stuff up. Yeah. So then you have $200. And then inside of that, you're having some progression into a meeting, or you're going to have some sales follow up to try and like move that into a meeting, basically trying to project out or estimate what is going to be our cost per sales qualified opportunity. And from a direct mail, like all you're doing is hoping I want it to be better than what other things that we're doing in marketing or sales right now. So then you can put together an estimate. You're obviously running a test, so you're never gonna know. So in the first test, it's not like, if you're running an experiment, the last thing that you wanna do is set expectations that it's gonna generate results. You're here to experiment. And so I would run, I would run that with an estimate and see how close you are to the estimate. So let's and send a small, so let's say we go 200 person sample on this direct mail, we run it, we get 
six sales qualified opportunities at $2,000 each. Then you look and you say, well, we're getting $2,000 SQOs over here and we're getting $8,000 SQOs in outbound and $5,000 SQOs on Google ads. Maybe we should try and scale up this direct mail campaign and have it keep going because we're getting the SQOs for 40% of the cost. So those are generally how I would think about it. So just to summarize here, one, align it against other things that are happening in marketing and sales from a cost basis in a metric that matters, and then build projections around what you think it can do, and then run the experiments and see where the data ends up. And then if the data and experiment being like small sample size, if the experiments end up in a good place, then think about how do I scale? Am I able to scale volume? If so, how? Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know one one thing that you had mentioned earlier was about the QR code. What is the, the story behind it? Because it, it's my first time hearing about the QR code. So I, I definitely want to take this inspiration too. So I want to talk to you yeah. to learn more about it. It's a great question. So the QR code was pretty much dead two years ago. No one was using them. All of a sudden, though, we had this event that happened. And now everyone's using QR codes for restaurant menus and, and things like the iPhone finally had native in the camera to, to open them. QR codes are being used. When you send out direct mail, at the moment, what people do is they say, hey, like, go to this website, here's a URL, or we'll call you, don't worry. There's not an easy, low friction way for somebody to take action off of a direct mail piece. I think that the QR code could be the answer. So it's in the box, in a piece of paper, somewhere like that. Somebody's, you know, make it enticing, somebody scans it, they end up going to a landing page that's tracked or you all decide where you want to send them. Thank you, Chris. Excited to, Thanks, to work Danny. with you once I get more. Come back in a month and let us know how it goes. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Danny, check out the chat and check in with Arthur. He ran a QR code campaign with uh, great success. Perfect. Thank um, you. So Chris, I'm going to bring on our old friend, Nelson. <laughs> excited because I think you're kind of, we're going to kind of go back to some of the original topics that you were talking about when you opened the show and he wanted to play challenger a little bit and push back on some of your assertions. And so this is going to be a good one. Nelson, you have the floor. (laughs) Thanks, Megan. Hey, Chris. Good to see you guys. Hey, everyone. Hey. So yeah, I um, just finished my book, The Death of the SDR and The Birth of Biocentric Revenue. And I think based on what I've seen, I think that the the problem that marketing is in, the straight jacket that I think you're doing a great job of helping people with, with attribution and the MQL hamster wheel, I think it's downstream from predictable revenue. And because I think that the go-to-market model, that's where it's all at. And then process and the technology comes after. That's my take. I think the tech companies, are definitely guilty. Like I think HubSpot and the, you know, the ABM folks, you know, they're encouraging it. They've gotten incentivized because they're trying to cater to the go-to-market model. And so when I'm thinking about predictable revenue and I see that, you know, when it was created 2011, based off of Aaron Ross's experience back at Salesforce in the early 2000s, and essentially it calls for prospecting and the sales assembly line, leaving the sales bit aside and focusing on the prospecting bit. Like it took me a long time to realize what that meant, but I realized that prospecting meant bad manual marketing 
and that SDRs were 100% prospectors, primarily to do telemarketing. So when you have a go-to-market model where your organization is structured from in which you've got either salespeople, AEs who are doing the prospecting, or you've got dedicated prospectors with the SDRs, then you have a marketing organization, which is then brought in or because typically then, you know, sales was brought in first and then marketing, they got it backwards. It should be marketing then sales, but they would try to, you know, keep this organization afloat and try to get these SDRs, all these type of uh, people to chase after or AEs people to chase after. I think that's a big part of it. It's not the only part of it. And I think you're right. The tech has a lot to play with it. You know, I think if we're looking to try to liberate you know, us and, and get that creative freedom and do the stuff that we want to do. We also have to point a finger at predictable revenue. I'm with you. I'm not saying that predictable revenue is to blame, but I do understand your logic about how this happens, which it happens for some of the companies that we try to do work for early on, right? We are even some that I was an employee of back in the day, right? You get in there as a marketer, you're trying to do good work for customers, but wait, the company overhired sales, they have six SDRs, they can't close business. Now, all of a sudden, instead of marketing, doing actual marketing, they're just sourcing contacts so that sales can fail at doing sales. So um, I totally see that perspective. However, there's some like evolutions going on right now, which I'm hoping continue, which is that somebody else other than marketing like RevOps or data or anyone is focused on figuring out what contact information and what signals to use to trigger outbound so that marketing can actually do marketing. I'm seeing that trend happen. But the problem is that even if that trend is happening, the way that the vendors are positioning people to do marketing continues to fall into a sales camp. I'll give you one, Nelson. I actually think this is the the unlock. It's generally that B2B companies think that they're doing marketing, but they're really doing sales and marketing channels. And so that's really the root. And I think that might go into GTM. It could go into mindset, but that the mindset of the companies when they do that, I think is what drives a lot of the short-term behavior, a lot of the direct response, a lot of marketing, basically just helping sales try to do sales. And 100% agreement with that. And I normally don't pick words with semantics, but I actually think it's really important in this context yeah. because people often confuse what marketing is and what sales is. And then somehow SDRs are like, somewhere between marketing sales and no man's land and people think they're sales. No, they're marketing. Mm -hmm. They're generating demand for sales. I think the idea that salespeople should be doing marketing or prospecting instead of closing demand generated by sales, mm -hmm. helping people who specifically request their help, helping, to, helping them to evaluate whatever and then helping them be successful, having them do, they're actually being forced to do marketing. That's what prospecting is. It's just, it's just marketing. Mm -hmm. And so... I do see it, and that's that perspective that I think needs to change. That where salespeople like think that, like, in order to be a good seller, and that it happens with its AEs or whatever, you got the SDRs doing prospecting. They think they have to, they ha that that's actually sales when it's marketing. If they thought of it as marketing, they'd be like, well, why am I doing that? And then marketing would be would say like, yeah, well, why are we doing this? Because there are a lot, there are much more abundant, superior methods of marketing. Mm -hmm. But there's this little blur where we have salespeople or, or we have these dedicated. SDRs who were doing these really bad marketing. So I think if there's a better clear delineation to say marketing does marketing and we'll generate the demand and sales does sales and we'll close that demand, I think it'd be a little bit clear for people because people don't understand like who's doing what and is this is it sales is it marketing and 
So yeah, I'll tell you if I was if I was an AE in any B two B company, I'd be doing marketing. It doesn't follow your guidance, but I I would be doing that because it's the way to close business. And so I think that a lot of salespeople get pushed to either try and figure out marketing on their own, or they just have a desire to do that because their marketing team isn't doing what they need to do in order to, to get them where they need to be. And so I agree with you. This is a, it's a go-to-market adjustment. What I'm basically suggesting and what I've been suggesting on this podcast for almost 200 episodes now <laughs> is that we need a new go-to-market model. We need to think very differently about how buyers buy and what resources are needed and how to do each of those things and what to measure and just rip it up. I've been talking about about rethinking the SDR role completely. I don't think any, literally no company has done that. We're probably going to be the first one that really does. So rethinking that, what is a, what is a business development type of role? What do you do in 2022 when you are trying to do that? What should a sales rep do? What should, what should they be measured on? How much should be, you be spending in marketing relative to sales? Like a lot of those things, I don't think companies have scrutinized since 2013, 14. Like a, a lot of those breakdowns happen, feel like they're still the same. Maybe there's been adjustments in the past 18 months because they had to. But those are, those are some of the things that I'm thinking. I, the only way to do this, and this is the, the hard part and why companies can't, is that the only way to get to where, where I'm saying is that you need to fix marketing first. And the only way that you can fix marketing first is to remove the constraints that prevent marketers from doing this. And companies can't do it. They can't remove the leading metrics and the KPIs that don't make sense. They can't remove the need for attribution. So marketers get stuck. Marketers are stuck. The whole GTM gets stuck because it's bound by fixing marketing first. Good back and forth. I know. Nelson, you, I think we um, deserve some free copies. Of yeah, your- yeah. Send out the free copies of the book. <laughs> yeah, all, thanks. All, all DGLers get free copies. Oh, no, definitely. Um, it's free on Kindle, and um, it does present a new model that I, uh, I I think will at least get the conversation going. So, so to your point about needing a different operating model, so we can be, you know, free to do the stuff we want to do. Uh, hopefully, it helps because it, it knocks down some of this stuff. Are you doing some marketing right now, Nelson? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's where I put my sales hat on. But I'm out. Thanks so All much, right. Chris. Thanks, man. Good to see you. All right. All right. So um, I got a bunch of questions that were submitted in advance that we kind of wrapped up in the chat. Do you want to go back to your agenda for a second? Yeah, I want to hit on one, um, an interesting one. So it's the leading metric that every marketer should be optimizing for. I think it's a really interesting topic. I I have been calling it up to this point, a sales qualified opportunity. But what I've been realizing is that everyone defines an SQO differently. Some people are like, it's stage one where we win them at 5%. Other people are at stage three or four where we win them at 30 or 40%. There's not a consistent definition. Additionally, it doesn't take into account whether where that opportunity was sourced from. Was it sourced through third assumed intent data from cold outbound, from a high intent inbound conversion? depending on which ones those came from, your SQO win rates will be different. And so what I'm suggesting is that when you look at the high intent revenue funnel that we're talking about, which is people qualified accounts and buyers come to your website and say, hey, I'd love to talk to your sales rep about buying your product now. And you think about optimizing that funnel 
that there's one metric in the middle that I've developed that I think that people should adopt, which I, I'm calling a high intent revenue opportunity. So hero, a high intent revenue opportunity. The qualification for that is that it fits into the deal stage that you're going to win at least 20% of those deals or more. And there is a dynamic quality control that happens across that stage. So if marketers push a bunch of junk in there and then the win rate goes down to 18%, then it actually, it would move a stage forward. So it can self quality control. So one of the things that are happening right now is that marketers don't have a quality control so they can set a metric which leads them to SQLs or poorly defined pipeline or things like that where marketers hit the goal and it doesn't help sales hit the goal. This is the check that you need so that though you need to keep continue to win these opportunities at 20, 20 or more percent. And if you actually do it the right way, your win rates will go up over time, not down. And so that's what I am thinking here. Some of the criteria that typically get to, and you can literally just go into your own deal stages and look at the win rates across every deal stage. So for instance, look at stage two, look at all stage two opportunities that were closed within a certain period of time figure out how many went to one and went to lost, figure out what the percentage win rate was. Let's say it's 15%, 15% is not high enough. So then you're going to move it to stage three. You do the exact same analysis, stage three win rate, let's say is 28%. So stage three would end up being your hero stage for only high intent, high intent conversions that come through um, a, your website and then move to that stage. The reason that I'm calling it that is because that is the number one opportunity that you're going to get in your funnel. High intent conversion, inbound, all the way to that stage where you're going to win more 20%. Automatic quality tr control, marketers continue to, to move that metric. That is one that I don't think that any marketers are using. So if you're looking at your leading metrics of MQAs, SQLs, pipeline, any of those metrics or things that are before that, if you move the metric to this, it would really it would really help you understand one whether or not the marketing that you're doing is effective because it's late enough funnel with a quality control win rate metric to know whether or not you're moving the needle for your to help your sales team. It's going to help you predictably forecast revenue moving forward because you have consistent win rates from that stage or better. And it's going to show you which tactics not to run where you lose all of the, where all of the deals move to close loss between the meeting and that stage, which is a lot in marketing. And so I'd be open to answering some questions on this because I know that it's a new concept and a new, I've actually talked about it a little bit. We're giving it a name and adding a little bit more color around it, um, but would love to hear what people think and, and any questions. So I'm drumming up some live ones, but someone sent something in uh, beforehand that I think is actually the perfect question to ask to keep this topic going. And so Elon sent this in. Um, in my experience, it takes at least four to six months to see results, even up to a year until you reach this point where you're generating marketing sourced SQOs or heroes, as you just introduced, you want to make sure you're on the right track. So as I see it, we can take a look at other signals without being obsessed with measurement, such as direct and organic traffic, engagement with your paid and organic demand gen efforts, word of mouth, DMs on social. Um, is there something I'm missing though? Like what are the things you're looking at before SQOs or before heroes? So 
at the beginning, and I, this is probably not going to fly for your project, Elon, but this is the truth. And so at the beginning, what you're looking for is you're looking for signals. You're looking for something. I'm looking for, I run a Facebook ad and 20 people that work at the companies that I want to go after comment on it. I'm looking for that I post a LinkedIn post and seven people like it, but four of them are the CMOs at companies that I want to sell to. I publish five podcast episodes and I get one DM from somebody that says, hey, that podcast was super helpful. I shared it with somebody. So I'm looking at the early, early stages, qualitative, where people that are my potential customers are giving me signals that what I'm doing is helping them, that's effective, that they're engaging. It's so weird. Nobody looks at that stuff. Like that's, that's why our content strategy has been so successful because those are the signals that matter and those are the signals that we optimize against. And so those are some ones. I'm going to give you a couple other data points here. I got a dashboard pulled up. So one of the things to, to address here is he mentioned four to six months. What we're seeing across our customers is that a median increase in the first quarter of working together is 50% on pipeline. So that is a, a median increase that it trumps the idea that this strategies take a long time to generate results. That's a pretty meaningful result, 50% increase in pipeline in 90 days. So that's one to think about. So you can just look at pipeline and you can move that needle. Like I've mentioned before, lead handoff optimization, conversion rate optimization on the website, better Google ads and optimization, not wasting so much money on Google ads, spending some money on paid social with good creative. Do that over 90 days, you're going to get a nice lift. So that's one option. The other signals that we're seeing, it's not organic and direct. The impact really is on direct in this model. And so that's what we're seeing right now. I would suggest looking only at direct before I, Gatano and I were talking about it years ago, we would blend them together as we look through the data more. It seems like direct is really the, the leading indicator, not organic. And the last one I would look at, and there's probably more, I'd look at the amount of people that are coming to my high intent page. So you can, you can look at what does the funnel look like? Reverse, like build up the funnel. So you have your form page, whatever that is. I'm going to say, how many people hit that form? without running paid traffic all over it, because obviously you can gain that metric. And then I'm going to look at where are the people, how are they entering that form? Are they coming from the homepage? Are they coming from this product page? How are they getting there? And I'm going to start looking at that type of traffic so you can build back up the funnel. The last one that you could look at, these, um, the ones that I'm saying here are kind of like reaching, but I know that they would be, they're more likely to be accepted inside of companies. So I'm just giving you a couple other ideas. Um, the last one would be if you had some type of web account de-anonymization tool, you could start to look at how many tar- of your target accounts come to your website, which for me is not an important, not an important metric, not something that I'm going to score well, but a lot of companies really care about that stuff. So that's something that companies want to spend a hundred grand on tech to measure, then they can go ahead and do that too. So let's get tactical then. We, um, you know, there's a demand marketer, they work at a company, they've pitched the idea of high intent revenue opportunities, they're getting some buy-in and some interest from executives, it makes sense. How how are they navigating the transition from how marketing is being measured today, whatever definition of SQO they're using, to um, being able to influence the change in measurement of all marketing efforts. So like talk through what are the big steps in your mind to like navigate that effectively. And let's assume 
and this is an ideal scenario and you have some buy-in at the executive level, they're generally supportive. Yeah. So let's look at the ultra common example that I hear every week from either a CEO or a CRO or someone in marketing, which is that marketing's optimizing for, let's just call it SQLs for this point. So they're optimizing for SQLs and they're crushing their target. And then sales is missing quota by a bunch. The reason is because the metric that marketing is optimizing for is not, is not actually a good predictor of the revenue outcomes that sales needs. And so what I would do first is I would look at all of the, look at all of the outcomes and then basically just change, look at the data and then just change the goal of what you're scoring against. So you're going to have on one side, you're going to look at, here is my funnel when we optimize the sales qualified opportunities. But if we changed to high intent revenue opportunities, how would that have changed marketing's performance? So it would probably go from marketing being 150% to plan to marketing being 37% to plan because so much stuff is getting lost in that gap going to close lost. So you could look at that and then you could say, oh, well, that makes sense because sales sourced a lot on their own, but they missed plan by this much. And the reason was because marketing was 37% to plan instead of 100% to plan. So then you can see that that metric is a better predictor of actual outcomes for sales. And then you can switch to that. When you switch to that, you're going to find what are the opportunities that actually made it that far. You can look at revenue too, but for now, let's just go with the example. Let's look at where do those where do those opportunities actually come from? If you use regular attribution software, multi-touch, regular, it doesn't really matter if you use software-based attribution, it's going to tell you a couple of core things. It's going to tell you search, brand, uh, paid or organic. It's going to tell you direct traffic for the most part. It would be a good idea if you wanted to take that and add the how did you hear about us to the form so you actually have real insights about where these people are coming from, not just organic or direct with no actual insights. And then you actually go out and rebuild your strategy to optimize for that metric, not SQLs. So that's kind of like the process of thinking about it, adjust, like doing the analysis, adjusting the measurement, and then going to it. And then on an ongoing basis, what I'm really trying to hammer home here is th- the key here is that there's a quality control lever so that as mar- if marketing quality goes down, it's easily seen. And then the metric, the marketing metric that you're optimizing for changes. So if marketing starts doing that, it's clear because marketing stops hitting the goal. Right now, marketing can just hit SQLs all day. It doesn't matter what the win rate of SQLs are. It doesn't matter what the conversion rates are. They can just hit that all day and you don't see it until the end of the quarter. But if you changed it to say, okay, we need to have consistent, we need to have a high win rate from this stage forward. As that win rate went down because marketing was driving low quality, you would immediately get that flag and you would know months before you missed your plan that marketing wasn't going to do it. So that was the last question on this topic was from Chris Glansman. You referred to it earlier, I think, as like self-correcting. So it's like something's happening. This metric goes down. You get an early warning sign that something's up. Can you expand on that further? Like, how do you diagnose what's wrong? What do you like now that you have that benchmark in place, you know, there's a problem, but then what do you do if you see it going in the wrong direction? Yeah. So if this number starts to go in the wrong direction, there's several different common root causes. Stage two is probably the most appropriate for this example. So let's just say you're optimizing for stage two. And through that, you have a 22% win rate. But then marketing gets the idea, oh, it would be amazing if we get more stage two pipeline. Here's what we're going to do. 
we're going to send LinkedIn conversation ads to all of our target buyers and offer them a $300 gift card to Uber Eats if they come and do this so that they get to stage two. And so marketers go out and do that campaign. They drive a bunch of people into stage two. And then all of a sudden, those opportunities move immediately to close lost. And the win rate that used to be 22% historical for that deal now drops to 16%. And so, and then when it drops to 16%, what happens is that the goal changes for marketing from stage two to stage three. And so now marketing can optimize for that, the specific metric of using that tactic to get people into stage two, because it actually doesn't hit their goal because they move to close loss before they get to stage three. So that's the practical example. It eliminates a lot of the short-term garbage pipeline that marketing puts in, in order to hit metrics that don't matter. So that's the, the number one thing. If there's anybody out there that wants this metric put in place, it should be the CRO. Marketing optimizes for a metric that you know you're going to win those deals at 20%. It's a pretty good metric for me. And then you got to figure out how to drive more through it and maintain the win rates. Um, and that is truly where the skill comes in. That was awesome. Hero, you heard it here first. I think you have the blended funnel next. Do you want to get into that? And then we can wrap up with a batch of questions. Why don't we save the blended funnel for next week and let's jump to... Uh jump to some more questions. Okay. So guys, drop your questions in the chat and I'll bring you on live, but we had a few submitted in advance. So I'll go to those. So this is an anonymous question. Everybody loves those. This person got a job offer uh, from a B2B SaaS startup. They would be the first marketing person. They're getting some stock options, but aren't really sure how to understand the value of those or if they're worth it. The salary offers a little bit better than their current salary at a different, uh, more mature B2B SaaS company. And he's just not sure what to do. So he appreciates the podcast and is curious how you would think about evaluating staying where he is or taking um, a job as the first marketing person at an earlier startup. So based on the information that's been provided, I don't have a ton of context on where this person is in their career or other things, but it sounds pretty much like a lateral move to me. You're moving from being a marketer at one company to being a marketer at a different company, salaries about the same, stock options at that stage where you're the first marketer are essentially meaningless in my view. I wouldn't count on that as a point of compensation. I don't know what the stat is, but it's probably from that stage forward, probably 98% of those companies never exit, never make any money. And so when I think about this, I'm thinking about from my career, number one is, am I getting in the right vehicle anytime in your career, but especially when you're earlier in your career, number one should be, am I in the right vehicle? Meaning that am I with a strong leadership team and team that's going to push me where I'm going to be able to build skills, build experience, learn how to do things the right way. The reason is because that's where you're going to get the largest ROI long-term on skills, experience, and relationships. And so am I in a vehicle where I can build those things quickly? Am I in a vehicle that has a strong leadership team, a strong product, is in a market that's winning? Those types of components is definitely step one for me. And then I'm looking at growth after that. So after you understand, am I in the right place? The next thing is going to be for me, is my function a core strategic priority of this business? This is a huge one for marketers. Everyone's going to say, Mark, especially if they're trying to hire you, marketing is the most important, but you get into the business, 
I don't know what the stat is. I'm, I'll just make it up and guess right now, but it's probably around 50% of companies. It could be more. Don't actually value marketing. The marketing team isn't growing. They're not getting any more budget. They're just spinning their wheels doing stuff. So you don't want to be a marketer on that team. You want to be a, a marketer in a company where marketing is the most important. Marketing drives major results. The investments are going there. The growth is going there. Those, the opportunities are there to grow. So that's another thing. Like I've been a marketer on a team that when I started at the company, the marketing team was eight people. And two and a half years later, when I left, the marketing team was still eight people. And that one's a little bit tough to tease out, but you want to be in a place like it would be, it would be the equivalent to being the best wide receiver in the NFL on a team that only runs the ball. You want to be a, the best wide receiver in the league for a team that likes to throw the ball. So be in a place where, where marketing is a critical component of the business. And that's the same, same advice that I would give to sales, product, anything. Like that your core function needs to be a strategic part of the company. And that provides potential growth opportunities. And then Meg, Megan, I'll pass it over to you. But those are some, like leadership, mission, culture, like vehicle. And then I had, is the department important and strategic? I would love your insights as well. Yeah. So, um, and he called out stock options specifically, and there's a lot of good advice that people are dropping in the chat. I think it's really important to educate yourself on stock options because it's the exception, not the rule that anybody makes any real meaningful payday on those. And so it's super typical in any startup. We'll give you thousands of options, but they literally might be worth nothing forever. And so you should not be basing your decision on that. I think we've talked about this on a, a past DGL. I think the, the and you, you alluded to this in your answer too. I think the things to optimize for earlier on in your career are learning and the ability to try new things within a safe space. Um, and the other thing that I would add is look for things like psychological safety and a healthy work environment. Because even if, you're in a high growth startup and you can learn a lot. You might find yourself in a very difficult or toxic environment that, and the cons might outweigh the benefits that you get on learning. So those are a few other factors that I would think about, but you shouldn't make a move because of stock options. That should never be a deciding factor. And I think that that was one of the key differences that maybe this newer company was offering you. Another thing that I always recommend is like, try the product out itself. Like, see if you can talk to a customer. It's not fun working for a company with a shitty product. And a lot of early startups don't have great products <laughs> <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, another thing to go off, I'm, I didn't have any context of where they were in their career. But if you're relatively early in your career and you're going into a company to be the first marketing hire, that can be a really bad situation because who's going to lead the strategy of that company if you're the only marketer? Most likely a CEO that doesn't understand marketing or a sales leader that doesn't understand marketing. And so if you're early in your career, I would actually think a lot of people think that it's attractive to be the first marketing hire and to be able to have the opportunity to build out a team and different things like that, which is great for some people. But if you're relatively early in your career, it would actually probably be a lot more beneficial to join a team of 10, you know, eight, 12, 20 marketers 
and really learn marketing in a high performing environment. So then you can take all of those learnings that you get from all those smart people and the experience. And then you go over and you know much better how to select the company. You know how much better to tease out whether the leaders align with your philosophy on marketing that you're going to be successful there. And so it might be a little bit of a a longer path, but I do believe that it would be a lot more effective. Yeah, definitely. Chat is hot on this topic. Great advice from everyone on here too. Too bad. I don't think he's here to look at the chat, but hopefully, (laughs) hopefully he's listening to the episode. I actually had a couple of questions that were submitted in advance that were both speaking about the same topic and both were really getting at the core question of, so this is, um, doing some math, one of your favorite things, Chris, people basically wanted you to rehash how you think about calculating like cost per SQL, cost per SQO. They're trying to better understand how they should be going about thinking about presenting that and tracking that over time. So do you want to break that down for a couple people who asked about it? Yeah. So specifically in this context, what we're typically doing is we're using outbound to set benchmarks to understand where we should be inbound. So my recommendation is to look at it outbound first, set the definition so that SQO is really a sales qualified opportunity, not an SQL or a meeting booked. So move the metric to a place where you are going to predictably close deals and then take the entire, just the entire headcount and technology and data expense of the outbound team and divide it by the number of SQOs that were sourced by that team over a period of time. And that would give you the cost per SQO outbound. So that one's pretty simple, simple and straightforward. On the marketing side, or if you think about it from the buyer's perspective, this is really just like an inbound motion. And so when you think about it from that perspective, you actually have it in two layers and we look at it in both layers. So you're going to take all of the variable expenses that are being or program costs that are being used to generate these SQOs, you can break it down by program or you can look at it blended. And so let's just say we're spending money on media, we're running events, and we have a firm that's helping us create a podcast and content. So you take all of those expenses and then you look at how many sales qualified opportunities you created and you have a cost per SQO for like programs. Some sometimes we call it advertising cost per SQO. So then you have one baseline and then you're going to add in all of the fixed costs that go into doing that. So you can, I wouldn't add tech infrastructure here, but I would add headcount that's direct labor to associate this. So you have agency fees, in-house marketers that are direct on the demand team. So like a product marketer isn't going to go into this expense, but your demand manager or your campaign manager would. And then you have a marketing cost per SQO looking at that too. So you have variable costs and you have like all costs put together that are direct to that expense. And so you have advertising costs per SQO, you have total like marketing costs per SQO, and then you can compare it against what's happening on the outbound side and then look at those comparisons. The reason that you do this and one of the best use cases that I've found for this is that if you get to a place and you use that hero definition and you know that you're going to win those opportunities at more than 20%, then it allows you to use a leading metric to forecast revenue and to project customer acquisition cost. So, and that allows you to make a much more clear case when marketing's working to scale it faster rather than waiting for a lagging metric that you're going to wait 90, 180, however long your sales cycle is to actually see. 
So an example of that is where, let's just say, we are generating marketing at SQOs at $3,000 for 50K ACV product. We're going to win those opportunities at 25%. That means that our, our projected customer acquisition cost on the marketing side would be $12,000 for a $50,000 acquisition. You have to load in your sales expense. Hopefully, it's not $36,000 to make it a one-year CAC payback. So then you have basically, we can get customers at $12,000. How many would you like? And that's, what, that's where marketing should get to is that you should have a very predictable model, especially on media. Organic is a little bit different, but you're still spending money. It's just on labor instead of media to produce more content or run more media or different things like that to produce more of an outcome at the same cost. And that's pretty much where you want to get to. I think the challenge with a lot of marketers is they can't get to that point. You can make a business case to get more budget and scale marketing when you get it to that fundamental level. Our SQOs are costing us $3,000 over here. Our outbound team, it's costing $8,000. Our outbound team wins SQOs at 15%. Our inbounds win at 28%. Our customer acquisition cost on marketing sourced is whatever, 50% or maybe even less than that of what it's costing us on outbound. I know that you want to hire 10 more SDRs, but it really makes more financial sense to invest that money in marketing. All right. I've got two longtime DGLers with some good questions. So Katie's up first and then our good friend, Jess. And then that might be it unless some more pop up. But Katie, you're on live. Go ahead and ask your question. Hey, Katie. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. So I kind of had a follow-up on the careers question that was asked. I was just interested to hear more about what your experience was like when you were kind of earlier on in your career and, you know, what kind of mentors you had, I guess, what to look for in a mentor, that kind of thing. Yeah. Just interested to hear what your experience has been like. So to be honest, I was lucky to just be exposed to people that taught me a lot of things. So I wasn't, I never sought out a mentor. Um, but I was lucky that we used a, I would say a classically trained marketing strategist, or I don't think product marketer does it justice, like more like CMO strategist, right? Who helped me figure out how to go and talk to customers, what questions to ask, what mindset to bring, what are we trying to figure out? How do we do that over time? It took me years to really develop that skill. It's probably my most valuable skill as a marketer still today. So I was lucky to have somebody that taught me those things. And then... I was lucky to work in organizations where even at an early age in my early to mid 20s that I was involved or at least was able to observe a lot of boardroom discussions and decisions to understand how executives made decisions. So that's a tip for someone that's not really like looking for a mentor, but see if you can find a way to get in the room just to see what people are saying, what people are doing, how they make decisions. Like I studied that for a very, very long time, which get, allows me to communicate with executive at the executive level the way I do right now is just because I studied how people made decisions for a long time. And then I got into a company where I basically the, the VP of marketing was a pure strategist. And I learned like deep segmentation. Where are we actually going to target? How are we going to direct our 40 person sales team directly to the accounts that we know that we're going to win? How are we going to enter? Who's the stakeholder we're going after? What is the message? How do we land that account? Because once we land it, we know that we're going to expand to five, 10 X over the next 12 months. So, a lot of the mentors that I had were on the strategy side. 
I think a lot of marketers should think about how to find someone that really understands that side because it's the missing piece for a lot of marketers right now. And then where I got the tactics was by doing it all myself. And so by building e-commerce companies from my bedroom and experimenting with things that I was learning inside of the businesses I was working on, starting with building websites, running SEO, running email marketing, building e-commerce websites and B2B, and then moving more into demand, pipeline optimization, rev ops things. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the tactical level actually started by running e-commerce companies. And the reason that it was so helpful for me is because when you're starting an e-commerce company that does no revenue and you sell a commodity, your marketing really has to work. And so a lot of a lot of marketers never have that experience. They go in and they start working at a $30 million company and there's some demand for that product already. And so they don't have to do anything and some of the revenue is going to come through. But when you have nothing, you have no signals, like it's very clear if your Instagram content strategy is working or not, and or if your your Amazon search ad strategy is working or not to sell them. And that's how I got to build the principles and skills of what I do on LinkedIn Organic today, how I run paid search ads on Google, et cetera. Those are some of the things that that I was exposed to that I thought were like really impactful in my career. Yeah, that's super useful. I think the two things that stand out to me is the strategic thinking and also the, I mean, you were talking about it from the perspective of like how executives make decisions, but I also think like, obviously there's a different way of communicating with people at that level than a communicating with just like people in general um, yeah. in the business. And I think that's something that's like another perspective on that, like being in the boardroom, like it's a different way. It's a different way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Katie. Great question. And Jess, excited. The mirage? Oh, yeah, the mirage oh. is gone. <laughs> Not the attribution mirage episode, Chris. A, <laughs> I know, Jess has a good question, though. Cool. <laughs> I, I wanted to know a bit more about how you go about approaching non-customers for interviews. So the importance of going out and talking to customers, but you also talk about it's good to talk to people who aren't your customers to find out from them. But I guess I would want to know how you can approach them without them thinking that you're trying to sell to them or that there's, you know, some other agenda or mm -hmm. you know, what, how, how do you approach them? The only reason that if you approach them that they think that you're trying to sell them is if you actually are. Your intent shows very well. I know this because at the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. I was actually trying to sell, but I was pretending I was doing market research because I didn't know what I was doing. So that's one kind of caveat is really like you as a marketer need to separate from the outcome and realize what you're doing. The second thing that I've, I'm pushing people to get to as quickly as possible is that it doesn't feel like an interview and it doesn't, you're not, we're not calling it an interview. And so it's weird to think about, but how do you have this type of like setup where you're interacting with the market and getting insights all the time so you don't have to set up a formal interview? So and it, people are going to be like, oh, that's easy, Chris. Like you're a marketer, you're talking to marketers, blah, 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 blah. And again, I did this for other buyers in the past and I would be in the Facebook groups. I would go to the conferences and just hang out with the people that were influential and see what people were asking them and what they were talking about and build relationships with them. I would visit our accounts that were prospects and just learn from them and share clinical data and talk about what other companies were doing that wasn't relevant to our product. So there, I think there are a lot of options here. 
But I think the main one is to figure out how to not need the interview format to get those insights, which requires you to really be a, to transition from a vendor to a peer. And maybe it's not, and maybe it's not depending on your buyer, maybe it's not you, right? Like I was able to do some of this stuff well, but I can tell you that our VP of medical education that was a practicing clinician for 20 years probably got way better insights and way better things than I did from talking to the same people. There are nuances, but those are some of the options. And then I, I think you had like a real question there. So if I answered kind of, I inferred some things from yours, but I would love to answer your real question if I didn't already. Yeah, I, I think you kind of hit it. It was more, you get told, you know, it's good to go and talk to, um, you know, and, and have maybe not interviews, but, you know, fi- find some people who are customers to talk to and find the ones who aren't the customers. So it's, I don't know if I was just missing something in terms of, it's like a setup thing where you go and have a sit down with them and have an in-depth discussion. And it was more like, how do you pitch that? But yeah, I think if it's more an organic thing that happens because you're in situations with them um, and it's not necessarily just with them on their own. Mm-hmm. Interviews are a good place to start. I've done them a lot. I think they can be effective, right? So I'm not like knocking on interviews. I'm just, maybe I took one step too far. So interviews can be effective. Another strategy that I've used and one of the ones that was early stage and how we were able to start building the initial phases of growth at Refine Labs was using a podcast to talk to people that weren't our customers and understand what was going on. So a podcast can be a really unique opportunity. Following people on social or finding the groups can be a a third one, just observing. And then the last one that I think is super, super underrated, and it was a strategy that I used in almost all of the companies that I worked for actually, is you need to identify the one, two, three, five people in the market that your customers really listen to. So like an example for me, for me, it was director of respiratory at Boston Children's. It was head of respiratory at Seattle Children's. It was director of emergency medicine at Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital. I knew who the people were. They were publishing the clinical trials. They were posting content on LinkedIn. They had big followings on Facebook groups or Twitter. And I knew who they were. And then I went and built relationships with them. And they were able to translate all of the insights of what they were seeing in the market to me, which led to product feed. They basically can be your kind of like the look into the market based on their perspective. So as long as your perspective aligns with them and you trust them, that can be a really interesting way to get market feedback as well, as well as introductions, credibility, other things like that. I think that's a very underrated approach from, from marketers. When you do that, you need to be providing a tremendous amount of value to that person because every vendor is trying to do the same thing. They should be if they're not. Awesome. Thanks. It's good to see you. Thanks, Jess. Back sometime. Always count on you for a good question. We're kind of tapped out. So yeah, closing great. thoughts. Okay, cool, everyone. So next Thursday, October 7th at 12 p.m. Eastern, we have another keynote series with Dave Gerhardt, which will be awesome. We have not released the topic yet, so stay stay tuned for the email. Uh, but those ones are always killer. They produce great podcast episodes. We get a ton of awesome questions and attendance there. So people that are in Europe or otherwise, that's the the event to come to. And yeah, it's been awesome to see you all. It's been a crazy couple. <laughs> it's been a crazy couple of weeks of travel for me. So I'm looking forward to being back in Boston. And yeah, anyone that hasn't, I'll give close out with one last thing, and then I'm going to let everyone go. Anyone that hasn't seen the Attribution Mirage video on LinkedIn and hasn't considered whether or not to use the how did you hear about us on 
your own form, I would highly encourage you to check out that video or listen to that podcast episode and then decide whether you want to do that for your company. We are actively installing that on other B2B SaaS companies to collect data with the objective of having a large scale data at 20 or more companies to demonstrate that this isn't just a phenomenon that's happening at Refine Labs, that this is happening across the board because it's how buyers buy and that the way that attribution software is built is outdated and is not accurately representing how B2B buying processes happen. So you can wait for that big report, which could take three or six months to get it, or you could go and put that field on your form right now and get those insights without waiting for the report. And I'm very confident you're gonna get the same stuff. So little tip for you, bringing you innovation tips here at Refine Labs all the time. So anyway, I'm babbling now, so I'm gonna let everyone go. Hope you all have a great rest of your week and look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Have a great week, everybody. Bye, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode. Thank you.